You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 66 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And welcome to the booth at the Satrum Public Library in Holbrook, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us via Google, well, it's actually not Google Hangouts. It's, uh, we're using Facebook Messenger for the first time. Um, they'll never know, Chris. They'll never know. Um, so joining us today is Maxine Blyweiss. And Maxine is the former director at the Westport Library in Westport, Connecticut. And to say the least, uh, she's an innovator, uh, being a pioneer in makerspace in the makerspace movement. And she's also an author, writing numerous articles for various publications, and was awarded the Outstanding Librarian Award by the Connecticut Library Association. Uh, she also received the Charles Robinson Award for Innovative Librarianship from the Public Library Association. And uh, those are just some of her accolades. And uh, first the librarian then an administrator, and now a consultant with Maxine Blyweiss and Consultants. You can, find her more, you can find more about her consulting business at MaxineBlyweiss.com. And uh, she's received, like we said before, many awards. And we're going to talk to Maxine about her beginnings, where these ideas came from, and the effective strategies to introduce the maker mindset in their libraries. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, Bob, you're up. Oh, is that me? I'm going to do all right. So before we dig in, before we dig into these great topics, let's learn a little bit more about Maxine. So Maxine, you did most of your work in Connecticut, just across the Long Island Sound from us here on Long Island. Are you originally from Connecticut? I'm not. I'm from Rhode Island, right next door. And I had a great training in my upbringing because my father was the local newspaper reporter and my mother was the local hairdresser. Wow. So it was like information central in our house. Uh, we knew everything, and we were used to knowing everybody's name and what their story was and how to help them and uh, make their lives better. So I, I can't think of a better, better way to grow up and then become a librarian after. Wow, that's funny. The two people who would be the, the biggest source of information in the town, right? Yep. So tell us about your first, what your first library job was like and, you know, uh, what did a new librarian Maxine look like? I asked because well, there, there are so many new librarians who listen to the podcast, and it's always interesting to hear about what a pioneering librarian uh, was thinking on their first day in the field. Sure. I was, I was pretty brave because when I went to Rutgers to library school, I thought I was going to be a college librarian, and my first job offer was to be head of a branch library in New Jersey. It was so tiny that I called it a twig. Huh. rather than a branch because it was had been the model home in a new housing development and um i had to do four story times a day i had never had children's literature i'm an only child i didn't really like kids um so it was uh an amazing trial by fire and i loved it but i needed a little more talent so within a year i was applying to be a library director at the age of 24 and that whole process was kind of crazy because for my second interview, I actually bicycled from Rhode Island to Connecticut overnight, 
and by the time I got to the interview, I was covered with poison ivy all over oh, my face. Boy. And they hired me. <laughs> wow. That's a great story. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> you win the most unique uh, upbringing in libraries. I can tell you that. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> that's, that's an incredible wow. story. Wow. So how far did yeah. you bike from Rhode Island to Connecticut? How many miles? Uh, you know, I, I should, I should, I almost about, I don't know, 116 or 120, something like that. That's really impressive. Holy cow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Holy, wow. Great. So now that I'm, you're, I'm impressed. Yeah. It's, 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 that's crazy, right? And don't be stealing my question. I know it's what you're trying to do. I was not. I'm sorry. Now that you are a consultant, <laughs> actually, nice. do you, do you work just in the Northeast or do you work outside that region? Yeah, I work all over. Um, Last year I was in Michigan, um, and uh, I'm heading to North Carolina this year, and Florida, and um, I coached somebody in California. Um, I went to Berlin last year, Germany, to to speak. Uh, so yeah, I I go all over wherever it sounds like it'll be fun and that I can be helpful. That's where I'll go. Fantastic. That really is cool. So, Chris, do we have an invite coming for Maxine to come our way? <laughs> She'd love to come see our stuff, right? We we know people, so we could maybe hook it up with SCLS and try and get that to work out. Yeah, that's right. I can just take the ferry right from where I live. That's, yeah, you don't have to bike. Bring your bike, of course, but yep. you don't have to bike. That's right. <laughs> that would be really cool. Okay, so let's take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to talk to Maxine about the evolution of the Library of Things in Makerspaces. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, so we are back with Maxine Blyweiss. Okay, so uh, you're one of the first pioneers of um, what's now known as the Internet of Things, and it's also sometimes called the Library of Things now. Um, were, were you working oh, – I'm sorry. Where um, – wow, I'm going to have to edit this part because I messed up. <laughs> where were you working when this idea came out, and uh, where did the idea come from? Well, you know, I did everything by instinct, especially in the beginning. So I didn't even know it had a name or would ever have a name. I just figured that we need a library was a perfect place to teach people and share whatever they needed to know at the time. So one of the first two things we had when I was in, it was in Suffield, Connecticut, um, we, uh, we checked out Timing Life. That's back in the days when you could tune up your car. And we had sessions on how to tune up your own car. Uh, we also, believe it or not, had the first video cassette recorders. Um, and we would lend them out because we were just starting to, to get video, you know, video cassettes. And people didn't have the hardware. So um, it, it was kind of this mindset of constantly saying, where is the library in this? When we would see anything that was going on in the outside world, and then uh, just just acting on it. 
Maxine, when was that? What year was that? Oh, 1974, 1975. Wow, that's fantastic. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. When they say pioneering, that was it. Yep, yep, it sure was. Honestly, that's the equivalent, Chris, of landing on the moon for humans, right? In library land. That's yeah. Well, absolutely. even more so was eating and drinking in a library. Yeah, well, you know what? We're going to talk about that in our next question, right? So, And this question is right up my alley because actually at the Emma Clark Memorial Library where I work, um, we're just getting into the grinding of putting a cafe together, right? So I'm very interested to hear uh, your ideas on that. So when you were at the Lucy Robbins Wells Library in Newington, uh, you reimagined what libraries could look like, and you introduced a cafe into the library setting back in the 90s, which was yeah. unheard of, which was unheard of, right? So Absolutely. That must have sent shockwaves through library land with the culture of no food or drink in the library or just general, we were libraries of no back then, right? Um, so you also began to merchandise the collection. So tell us all about that. Sure. Well, I came from a culture of yes. That's the only word I, I, I knew how to say. Um, and we'll probably get on it later. But my first library experiences were not good. I was kind of a library failure. So I was determined to do everything I could to make people feel comfortable in a library. And, you know, it was just around the time where people were staying in libraries longer. And I always thought we'd gone from kind of the equivalent of a drive through restaurant to a sit-down restaurant. Um, so what's the first thing you do when you sit down? You have a cup of coffee. Uh, but we were starting to say, to, to come across people carrying water bottles in with them as if it was part of their body. And I just didn't want it to say no. Also, the most common question that we were getting after where's the bathroom is where can I get a cup of coffee? Where's the bathroom? So, so true. We, we, just, we just did it. And um, throughout the years, I've, so I've never been in a library that doesn't have a cafe. I can't imagine not allowing eating and drinking, never mind allowing, not encouraging eating and drinking in the library. And in our cafes, we did so much more than just dispense coffee or, or, or things to eat. We, we made it so that it was part of the culture. Um, what I would do every morning, I would go and get a cup of tea, and then I would pay it forward for the next person. And that would sometimes go on all day long, where people would just pay it forward for each other. And, and that was really cool and surprising for people to say, oh, it's already been paid for, you know, and... Uh, if you want to, you can do it too. We, um, we encouraged people to come up with formulas for drinks, and we would name them for them, you know, like Chris's Coffee. And then Chris would tell everybody to come to the library that month and drink his special coffee. So mm. it, it did a lot of great things um, in addition to, to you know, uh, give people a cup of coffee. Maxine, I want to remind you, uh, listeners that we're not talking about current day this is this is so uh, effective today and such a conversation starter and a conversation piece in libraries across the world today but you were doing this in the 90s that's right you know yeah. i do a lot of focus groups with um i love to do focus groups with seventh graders that's like the sweet spot for telling you like it is and being you know forthright the first thing they say that is important to them about the place that they hang out is that it has food and, you know, you've got to take that to heart. If you, if you want young people in there, you've got you've to gotta give them that. You know, that's really that's interesting. Fantastic. That's interesting yeah. because, you know, kids are really good at, at boiling it down to, the, you know, the, 
the the real um, the the center of of what things really should be because they they don't hold anything back, you know. Um, so say, That's where's right. the food? So there's your focus group right there. You got it. And merchandising, you asked about. Sure. Um, so I was always, you know, kind of surprised at why I was so much more visually excited when I would walk into a bookstore. And I thought, okay, it's because stuff is safe out and, and it's just kind of calling to you. You know, cover art is so gorgeous. And we hide it with those spines and those mysterious numbers on the back of the spines. So um, I also reflected on how much time libraries spend on the front end before they even get the book, you know, whether it's ordering it and cataloging it and all that kind of stuff. But we don't do anything after it arrives other than stick it on the shelf. So we really, you know, I felt we really needed to, to put things front and center and um, not just kind of stick it on a shelf face out, but then think every time something arrives, say, who needs to know about this? You know, how are we going to um, remove those barriers to, to those library secrets that we have of how to find the, the great stuff? Um, so it's, uh, I always thought, why is it easier to use a credit card than a library card? And merchandising was part of erasing those mysteries. That's really fascinating. I mean, it's merchandising is so much of, of what is done out there in a the retail world. So it makes a lot of sense to do it in the library. You know, if, if you're really, um, like you said, if you're visually engaged when you walk into a bookstore, why can't a library do that too? It makes a lot of sense. That's right. And, and, and making sure that staff were conversant with whatever was out there at the beginning of the day to, to be able to hand sell it and, and match it up with the, the people who walked in the door. You know, that's all merchandising too. It's, it's amazing how um, some libraries get it and others don't. And the ones that don't, don't don't seem to ever really get it, um, and especially when it comes to merchandising, because it's so much of what you do. I mean, like we just had Shark Week, and uh, here at Sachem we had shark stuff everywhere. We even three D printed little shark giveaways, and we had a, a social media campaign where people could take pictures by holding a cardboard shark's mouth open and, and putting their face through it, and taking a picture next to a shark that looked like it was you know swimming and going to bite something. And we had them tag it on Facebook and Twitter and. It was great fun, and then they got a little 3D-printed shark when they were done. So yeah. a lot of that marketing kind of flows really well into social media now, too. It does. So uh, you and I had a conversation at Computers and Libraries last year about creating a quote-unquote makerspace. And I was fortunate to have both you and Susan Considine, the former director at the Fayetteville Free Library, together, which was a very, very unique experience. Um, so tell us how that idea came about and was it a natural evolution from the concept of the internet of things or was it more of an idea that was separate and distinct from the first concept and, and maybe we can even get into the debate about whether it was you or, uh, or Sue that invented makerspaces <laughs> and she's not here to defend herself so we'll have to That's have right. her on to rebut it was Maxine period I tell you that was an, that was an amazing sitting between you know sitting at the table with both of them going back and forth it's kind of like it was it was great theater yep. it's fun I think the, the the best thing to say about that is neither of us knew the other one was doing it so therefore we were both doing it first right um, but back to your question I think it's all connected to 
the concept of experiential learning, that some of us, me included, learn best in an active hands-on mode with, with assistance. Um, I don't learn well by, all by myself. And um, I think libraries were always geared for the kind of cerebral learner. And you were missing, we were missing a big part of the population. So um, we have new opportunities as libraries realize they have to kind of divide their space up by decibel levels. You know, it's really by activity levels now because often content just goes wherever you are because it's, it's often in the devices that you have. So lots of opportunities. And um, I think one of the things that really thrust us into that, that limelight was in 2011, uh, one of my great staff members, Bill Derry, who um, is head of our um, innovation, heard John Seeley Brown speak. John, John Seeley Brown was a, a, an early person uh, for Xerox in Palo Alto at the, at the research park. And he was speaking at Computers and Libraries, the same conference that you and I met at, Chris, but many years before. And he implored librarians to let people do really cool, almost risky things in a safe space. So that was fall of 2011. By June of 2012, we had taken him up on that challenge. And uh, we had a, a, a full-fledged makerspace. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I don't want to say it was easy, but it really was easy because we had worked to break down all the barriers between staff and library users. We were already out at fairs and on the library lawn and at meetings with people and working side by side. So the way it actually happened is pretty cool. We were asked to be partners with this uh, smaller nonprofit organization to have the first maker fair in, in Connecticut. And uh, we said, sure, you can use the whole library and all the space on the outside. And it was 1,800 people showed up. Uh, we had That's 60 cool. makers. And this was in, you know, 20, 2012. So about, that was Saturday on Monday, I said to Bill Derry, okay, we need to do this every day of the year, not one day a week. And he looked at me and thought, okay. <laughs> I said, let's get us a maker in residence for the summer. So he was walking through the library floor and almost literally tripped on this guy who was sitting cross-legged and he was, he was sketching. And he said, well, Joseph, what are you doing? And he said, I have a dream that just like the Wright brothers, we build a maker shed in this space and we build airplanes. Any other time you might have thought this was crazy, but... Hmm because I had just said that to Bill, he said, let's go talk to Maxine. And two phone calls later, we had um, a, a lumber yard said that they would um, give us the materials, all the materials we needed. Uh, and I found a, a gift to pay, to pay a stipend to, to Joseph. And by the end of the summer, we had 40 volunteers from ages eight to 48. And uh, we were making planes. Uh, out of wood, the power tools. We had the very first 3D printers that MakerBot released, and we were helping um, entrepreneurs prototype their their plans and inventions. It was unbelievable. That's incredible. It really is. I mean, what was some? Of, were those just the beginnings when you first started? It was just 3D printer and some hand tools and, and stuff yep. like that. Yep. 
Yep. And then it just grew. Uh, we, we got an IMLS grant the next year to help librarians understand why libraries should be, should be doing that. And um, that, that, was, that was a great experience for us as well to, to help other people learn about it. Wow. It, it, it's amazing, you know, because we, we've set up a makerspace here at Sachem, and I know, Bob, you're, you're about to endeavor to, uh, to build one yourself over at Emma Clark. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see what other people are doing because you can compare, like we went over to the Levittown Library to see what they had because they had one of the, the, they were one of the few libraries on Long Island that actually had a makerspace. And we visited Half Hollow Hills because they were doing an e enable thing with their MakerBots. Um, so we were trying to get a feel for everything. So we were able to, you know, pull upon what other people were doing. But you started, like, right in the very beginning. That, that's, to me, that's just mind-blowing to, to come up with all this stuff just out of the, off the top of your head and just trying to figure these things out. It was fun. We also had humanoid robots when those were released. And that story hit the Wall Street Journal. And then it went viral all over the place. Uh, but we taught computer coding to hundreds and hundreds of people using humanoid robots. And wow. then it went on to help people to work with people with PTSD. And uh, it, was, it was incredible. That's really, really great. And you, yeah. your buy-in buy from your staff was good? Yeah. You know, it, it's like not everybody thought this was what they were going to be coming to work to do. Um, but as little by little, you know, just like with everything, you take the first early adopters and you bring them in and then you take the next ones and the next ones and the next ones. And, and as soon as they can see how it relates to them or their, their family or their friends, uh, they're more likely to do that. But we did cool things at staff meetings to get people in the maker mindset. Believe it or not, at one staff meeting, we spent time making paper airplanes. Um, that was a real load leveler, you know, just because just you had one degree or education or experience didn't mean you could make a good paper airplane. So we had, you know, see who could make theirs go the farthest. Um, one staff meeting, we all learned how to solder. Uh, and again, nobody walked in the room knowing how to solder. And um, we just wanted that spirit of learning and failing being normal. Uh, so you can pick yourself up, do it again, and, and be a team. Wow, and that's so important when you're doing a makerspace. You need to have what I like to call the coalition of the willing. And when you have the coalition uh, and they make things, they get trained and it becomes not easy for them but more familiar for them, it makes it a lot easier for um, for them to then be that 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 introducer of it to the rest of the staff. And then eventually the rest of the staff comes on, whether it's, you know, reluctantly kicking and screaming or maybe having an interest because they see, oh, I've heard about cricket. I don't know how this works. You know, you see, you find the different niches that, that suck them in. And that, I think that's the real trick, right? That's right. That's right. And you see, and they see people, you know, library users being excited. And we certainly attracted a whole different population than was used to coming. And that was really, really fantastic. That makes you really see value. You know, the patrons that, that do come in see a new value in the library that they just didn't get to see before. That's right. And, and we became like a, a tourist attraction. You know, yeah. when people would be visiting their family, they'd say, come on, I've got to show you what the library is doing. 
Yeah, and people don't think about that, right? The library. What would the library, especially now, honestly, if people haven't grown up using the library, uh, many of them don't see a reason to use it. And we have to almost, you know, tell them, well, what about these databases? And what, not just the databases, but what are we doing in the library? Like 3D printing, like, you know, engineering. They can come in and use some engineering software, you know, editing and, and, and mixing of videos and audio files. That kind of stuff was unheard of back then, right? Because you needed supercomputers to do it. But now... You know, you have a you have that space where you can do those things for those patrons. Yeah, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Exciting. Yeah. So, um, Maxine, moving on, uh, when we when you were the director of the Westport Library, uh, tell us how you were able to obtain board support for these uh, future endeavors. Because what you had done at Westport was a model, uh, and still is for libraries to follow to this day. Sure. Actually, I don't want to say it was easy, but. We had a great board, and they expected us to be doing things like this. So, and we wow. had a, a history of success with, with different kinds of activities. So it, it all kind of starts with a strategic plan. You know, with libraries have to have a strategic plan, and I can help them do that too. But, um, but our plan said that we would be leaders. And um, once that plan was adapted, you know, it's the staff's role to carry it out. It's not the board's role. It's the staff's role. So we really took that to heart and we created a position uh, for an assistant director of innovation uh, that made a big statement. Uh, we found, you know, the perfect person in, in Bill Derry. Uh, we kept our board informed, but we didn't formally ask permission because in a sense we were already given permission because of that strategic plan that, right. that they had passed. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, we got, it didn't cost anything in, in hard dollars because we had gotten those wonderful donations that I mentioned. Um, so we were really primed internally and externally. And, um, you know, I, I got them to realize that one of the biggest compliments that a library could be paid is when a person said, I heard about that first at my library. And we wanted to be that place that, that uh, people could count on to learn the, the bleeding edge stuff. That really is neat. And it's nice that your board was actually expecting you to do these kinds of things as opposed to you having to go in and do that hard sell. Yeah. No, I mean, they, they you know, it all starts with, uh, with the hiring process. And, and when they hired... Uh, when they asked me to come on board, they, that, that, that was what the package was, kind of. You know, I, I was known for doing things before, and um, that's what they wanted to, to continue. Wow. So now in your retirement, um, you're a library consultant. So tell us about some of the jobs you've worked on recently, it, as long, so long as you can. You're not violating any confidentiality, of course. Um, and what's been the most interesting project that you've worked on with Maxine Blyweiss and Associates? Sure. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it retirement for me. I'd call it more like next chapter. Because um, I probably spend a good one-third to one-half of the time I used to spend working in my, in my consulting life. And, you know, my goal is just to give library staff the courage and the tools to do great things. Because nothing is more important than the impact that public libraries can have. Um, the first thing, one of the first things I did was I created a course for new library directors. And I, I gave that through ALA 
And then since then, I've done it for um, various organizations, whether it was the State Library of Michigan or a county uh, system in Florida. So that's fun. Um, I work on strategic plans locally. I've worked with architects to help kind of be the, the interpreter between the architect and the, the library staff to make sure that, that spaces really work for everybody. Uh, I've coached uh, library leaders who need somebody to talk to in a confidential way, and that's been fun. I've uh, educated boards on what their role is and what it isn't. Uh, I love to speak at conferences where, where you and I met, Chris, about you know like removing barriers and how to interview people more effectively. Uh, face planning. Um, I make sure I, I go to cutting edge library conferences, like the next library conference in Denmark, in Aarhus, Denmark, where the a most amazing library I've ever been to is called Doc One. But my, I think my most interesting project to date has to do with where it was. And I got to work with the town of Newtown to do strategic planning four years after Sandy Hook. And that was just mind blowing to, to be with those people who had uh, been in charge uh, during that tragedy and, and watch how they came together as community in, a, in, in the most exquisite way. Uh, it, it was just an honor to be, to be with those folks. So that has to top the list, yeah, that, unfortunately. That, yeah, unfortunately, but I mean, it's, that's something that you should be proud of, you've been part of too. Yeah, yeah. Great place. That's, that's I'm sure they were honored to have you there as well and your input to make it a better community. Yeah, well, terrific folks. And to help the healing, right? That, yeah, that yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the library is such a critical part of that, uh, yeah. as unfortunately so many libraries have learned um, since then. Yes. So... Uh, Maxine, one thing that we don't get to do too often uh, is what we're doing now, and to speak with colleagues who have made the transition, and I'm not going to call it retirement, right? I'll call it alternative things to do. How's <laughs> that? <laughs> so you made the transition from like a, you know, a, uh, I guess more full-time, you know, structured between A and B, um, now to your consulting um, gig, which has become probably more work than ever, right? It's fun work. It's, yeah, it's fun work. It's, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. And if yeah. you were to give advice to someone about how to take that next step and and leave or retire or kind of stop doing what they're normally doing and go to a completely different direction from the profession, what would that be like? Well, I guess it depends what position you have, but somebody like me who's like totally all in as a library director, it's like owning your own business sort of, you know, or it's tremendous ownership. So I was kind of moved to write an article for Library Journal, and I think we titled it Letting Go While Hanging Around, um, because it's really hard if you don't move away. Uh, if you can move away from, from your library, that's, that makes it a whole lot easier. Um, but I would say it's important to replace you know, your career with other passions, and um, it's a great time to find new ones. But I have to confess, I was kind of, um, uh, had a hard time not being a library director. So I bought one of those little free libraries and put it in front of my house. 
Is that right? <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, that's a new one. We haven't heard something like that. That is cool. <laughs> so and, and in the beginning, I mean, anybody who works with me would have laughed. I probably went out, oh, I don't know, three times an hour. And I would take a picture of what, what was moving and what wasn't. And then I'd rearrange the books. And I mean, we're not talking about a ton of foot traffic here, so it was it was pretty insane. Um, but as soon as I look out the window, and if I see somebody out there, I rush out and try to have a conversation with them about what they like to read, and and if what they don't see anything in the box, sometimes I'll run into my house and I'll give them a book that I own. Uh, you know, it's just in there that that natural library thing. Um, but I would also say to people. It's great on the outside. You hear a lot more opportunity to introduce people to libraries. So kind of be that volunteer community outreach person and, and open up people's eyes that would never have walked into a library by, by either bringing them or telling them or, or making it possible for them to get a library card wherever they, they happen to live. Because uh, everybody needs that encouragement. And, and you know, you're, you're kind of uncomfortable about going places you've never been before. So we can, we can, we who have worked in libraries can really be helpful that way. That's some great advice, especially the part about replacing it with, some, replacing the, your job with something else, like another passion. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I have a feeling Maxine's one of those folks that never truly retires from anything. You just do it differently than you did before. That's true. Yeah. That's true. My dad that's, was still writing for the newspaper at age 90. That's awesome. That's how my dad and grandfather were, or are exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So thanks for coming on and talking to us about your experience with Makerspaces and your time developing projects that have helped shape what library land looks like today and all of your experiences with consulting. Um, when we come back, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Maxine our top 10 library questions, or what we like to call the 032 list, which is a Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we always give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions that we ask all of our guests. So we'll be right back. And we are back with Maxine Blyweiss, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. Questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Visit their site because they educate and inform the library land on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. So we really enjoy asking this list of questions of our guests because sometimes we get answers we haven't heard of before or, or never even expected. So it's fun to hear how many answers we have a commonality with and, and some that make no sense at all. So, and it's fun to listen to guests from all over the world who are doing library stuff. And it's interesting to see how sometimes they, maybe in another country, think exactly the same as we do. And in other respects, 
it's completely the opposite. So it's a lot of fun to ask us these questions. Are you ready to go? Yep. Okay. First question. What did you want to be when you were a child? Well, when I was 12, if I don't think it counts sort of before that, I went to a father-daughter Lions Club dinner. And they had a guidance counselor telling us girls that we could be nurses, teachers, or librarians. And I couldn't stand the sight of blood. And I didn't have a whole lot of patience with kids. So I took the third. And that's, that's what I stuck with. Wow. So, Maxine, what is your first memory of a library? And who do you think brought you to the library for the first time? Well, I'm from a little town. So, fortunately for me, I could walk to it. Um, I walked to my tiny little library. I had a super grouchy librarian person who was there. Um, I, I was a failure because he couldn't talk and I liked to talk. So it wasn't until high school when my high school librarian actually said to me, I have a book you might be interested in. And I was just shocked that somebody, you know, was going to put me together with, 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 with something I might like. And that made me all of a sudden think that, you know, librarians could be good people. Okay, so our next question, when did you decide to work in a library? And if not, if it wasn't your first decision, what was your first career path? Because many librarians and staff choose the profession as a second career. Yeah, well, I kept, you know, that early advice in mind. And I, I exposed myself to all kinds of libraries and positions like college and, and an art library at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And I figured out what excited me. But I made all the wrong decisions about what courses to take. All my courses were to be um, a reference librarian in a college library, which I would have been a disaster at. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, that first job offer came in a public library, which gave me the freedom to, to do what I ended up doing. And you know what? We uh, thank God for that, because um, I feel like we're talking to the the pioneer of the of the today's library, right? That, right, Chris? I'm yeah. not trying to... No, modern, I mean, no, the modern day library pioneer. I think it's I think it's awesome. I don't know where maker spaces, I, I don't know where lending libraries, library of things, you know, libraries and where would they would be if someone like you, right, Maxine or you did not do what you did. Ah, Starting in the seventies, right, and happening in the nineties, and now you're doing it again in two thousand nineteen because you're on a podcast that's going to inspire Chris hold my hand here millions of people right inspire millions <laughs> of people <laughs> internationally right. known you know library pros right no i think i think this is like you see the generations that you're affecting you know and i think it's it's a fantastic thing that you're doing so um and thank you once again for being our guest so who is your favorite fictional librarian well i, I i'm tempted to ask you to guess what i would say <laughs> <laughs> cuz it's not going to be a traditional one yeah. Chris, i uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I'm going to leave Chris up to that one because he's very good with. Uh... I don't know. Are we talking old school? Eh. So, as usual, I'm not talking about literature. Um, I would say Parker Posey in Party Girl in the movie. I would not have guessed that. <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> but that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so. Um... What would you be doing if you weren't working in a library? Now, I know you're like one of those one percenters that kind of, you, you would chart it out from, from the word go, it sounds like. But if, if you weren't working as, you know, working in, in the profession, what would you be doing? Well, if it were pre-2011, 
I would be selling sob cars because I am passionate about that car. Oh, that's just, that's a shame. And bereft that I can't buy another one except a, you know, a used one. But I drive a 2008 Saab, and it is the best car ever. And Chris, do you have a story about a Saab? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That's another whole podcast episode. Oh, Maxine, you brought up the right car. Chris and I have, have a Saab story about a Saab. And I won't, uh, go into great, I won't go into great detail, but they are amazing cars if you have the title for them. If that's you have the title, say. yes. <laughs> that's all, oh, that's great. If you have documentation behind the sob, they're great cars. Yeah. And from now forward, I would work in a knitting store. Hmm. I recently learned how to knit. It's the hardest thing I've ever done because it requires parts of my brain that I never really used much. Um, but it reminds me of going into a library when I walk into a knitting store. It's like you're embraced. It doesn't matter what you know, what you don't know. Everybody's there to help you and cheer you on um, and teach you what you want to learn and just let you sit and just do whatever you want to do if you don't want to, to learn. It's, it's just amazing. So that's what I would do. All right. So uh, I can't see the question, Chris, because your little highlighter is on top Sorry. of it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so how's fun. that? That's better. So, uh, Maxine, what is your favorite section of the library? It's wherever people have the opportunity to connect to each other the most. So in, in my case, it would have always been the cafe area and the makerspace, the, the place with the least barriers um, for people to get to know each other. Love it. Hmm. So if you had infinite space and budget, I think I know the answer to this question. So if you had infinite space <laughs> and budget, what would you add to the library? And let's just say that, that fictional library that you always wished you could have built, even though it sounds like you got your wish with Westport. I did get a lot of my wishes. I would make sure that I had people from all walks of life be in the library, being in residence for short periods of time. Because, you know, with the, with the great stuff that they're bringing of their knowledge, they're also going to be bringing different parts of the population in them. And, um, and I would do away, I would use that money to do away with every single big service desk that exists out there i'd come in with a chainsaw i, I love that i love can you come here please that's, that's actually <laughs> you're gonna have to, chris you're gonna have to edit this part out but can you i will pay you personally just come here <laughs> i am <laughs> well i i consider desk a bad four-letter word oh i no. I'm absolutely love love the ideas and that's yeah. that is the trend now again you're setting that you've set the trend i know that um here at sagem we're examining smaller um, service desks. Um, but you know, it's, it's a matter of, for me, it's, it's about mobility, you know, grab an iPad with the catalog on it and go out there. Not necessarily that, that roving word that people like to use. Cause I, I hate that too. But when you're helping a patron, don't write down the call number on a piece of paper, throw it on the iPad, bring the iPad with you. Cause that reference interview continues in the stacks. That's right. And, and to go along with that, cause I would put money, that money you're going to give me, into staff training and experiencing Fantastic. staff, you know, having right. staff experience what it feels like to walk into a space where they don't know uh, what they're supposed to do. And it's like walking into a, a country that doesn't speak the same language uh, so that you can get more empathy, lots of training on empathy, um, and even see if you could shadow someone who works at an Apple store, for instance. Oh, yeah. Because they've, they've learned how to do it really, really well. 
Chris, you know what's missing in a lot of libraries today is the passion that Maxine brings. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, I don't really like desks, and I think that we should move away from them and move to something else, and then not give the listener a, a solution or an idea of what they should move to. But Maxine said, I would just come in with a chainsaw, chop the desk up, and we're going to help the patron directly. That's like, that's, that's what's missing. That's, that's what's missing. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. Need more people. I, yeah. yeah. You got to start a training facility, Maxine, right? And well, what we'll do is we'll. Actually, I'm going to be speaking at PLA in, um, in Nashville in February um, about that exact topic, about how to identify and, and interview people to see if they are comfortable just having plain old conversations with people. Yeah. Uh, because it's from conversations that come opportunities. That's right. Do you remember the, to what they need. Remember the Fred Pryor seminars, Chris? Oh, sure. All the Fred Pryor seminars. Maxine, are you familiar? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you'd go, a bunch of people, 50 or 60 of you or more, would go and they would tell you how to interact with people and how to do this. I think you're the library's Fred Pryor. <laughs> but, but okay. You, but you're so right. It. I mean, it, it, there's so much of empathy involved. So when people come to the desk and say, oh, yeah, it's a 363.24 Fred. What does that mean? <laughs> Nothing so, to them. So for, for me personally, it's not something that we do here. It's not something that's a, it's a policy here at Sachem. I grab the iPad. I search for it. And I say, let's go get it together or I can go get it for you. Because you're the ambassador to the craziness that is Dewey. And when people, when you, they see you doing it, they want to then help you find it as opposed to you giving them a piece of paper saying, there you go, Next. We're not a yeah. deli counter. Yeah, that's the right word. That's ambassador. Right. Yeah, you're an ambassador to, to this crazy, this crazy organizational system that sometimes makes no sense. Well, most of the time. Can I put no a sense. can I put a sub question in here, Chris? Sure. So Maxine, like Chris was talking about ambassadors, what do you look for in a good new hire? Um, the ability to have eye contact. I love that. Mm -hmm. The um, and and insatiable curiosity i want to know what they've just learned what they're planning to learn and then how they would share it with others yeah, and chris and i have talked about this in the in the past it's more now the bedside manner right it's more now like the approach and, the, yeah. and how they're gonna the, the passion is great yeah. Yeah. but the approach to the that's patron right. that's not right. just leaving them dry in the stacks or saying I, I don't know that's just microsoft's problem i don't know why it's doing that you know, you know see if you can help with them and right. walking away from the computer, right? Right. And, yeah. I, I mean, I could talk about that one for hours, but we'll have to have <laughs> another one. That's another podcast, right? Yeah. Passion. Right. Pa you need to have passion because there are librarians that sit at that desk, and they're looking at Wayfair, looking to buy a couch, and somebody comes up and it's, oh, can I help you? And well, believe it or not, well, you probably do by now that you've been talking to me. I don't think we should have screens at the desk. Because our, our eyes are just glued to them. It's, it's addictive. And I don't think that's a secret anymore. That, Such that a screens... winner. Such a winner, Chris. This yep. is awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. So, so if you're going to have to look at a screen together, you do it together and you do it side by side someplace. But, but giving somebody a screen to stare at or to, to potentially look at is just asking for. It would be like putting a, 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 a big pile of M&Ms there for me. You know, a, it's right. like, it's too tempting. 
and distracting, right? Isn't it distracting because totally a, a patron walks by and isn't sure, can I approach, you know, some other folks, you know, more yeah. of an introvert, an introvert's right. not going to walk up and bother them. I mean, I always put people, tried to put people at what I call the, the point of confusion in mm -hmm. any building. Uh, that's where you start seeing people look up and around, you know, they don't know where they are, where they're going, um, at right. those junctures in, in, in our spaces. Uh, that's where people need to be so they can watch that, watch for that body language. And sometimes it's just a smile. I, I always tell people never say, how may I help you? Because that puts you kind of on the defensive. Like you right. don't have a good darn good reason to be there. It's hi, how, how are you today? It's the New York equivalent of saying, what's your problem? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's as soon right. as we're done with these questions, Maxine, we should schedule part two because this is, this is where we need to be going and what we need to be talking about. Yeah, sure, absolutely. sure. Um, so back to that. What do you love about your library? <laughs> well, I don't have one, but <laughs> in the past... <laughs> Making each person feel like they belong there. You know, getting to know people's names and their interests. And both, for me as a library director, both that applied to staff and to users. Um, I, I just um, always wanted people to feel like they were supposed to be there. No matter what was going on in their lives or what the situation was that day, uh, that it was, it was their place. So that's my best answer to that one. So this is, gonna, this is one of my favorite questions, and you've had a long career, so I'm sure you have stories. What's the weirdest thing, not necessarily the worst thing, but the weirdest thing that has happened in your tenure as in the library world? Well, you're right. I had to really think about which one I wanted to say, but this one struck me as really funny. Um, because it has to do with the parking lot of the library. And um, we had a, a person who worked for an architectural firm, and their assignment was to redo the space where the Academy Awards are given out in L.A. And so, so, so one night after work, she came to the library to do some research, and she stepped out of her car and she noticed in the parking lot, there was like this shiny substance. So she picked it up and it was loose. And she picked it up and she brought it in. And she said to a, a staff member, can you find out what this is? So the next day, the, the staff member called the public works department and got the name of this thing that they had put on the parking lot. Um, and lo and behold, like two years later, that's what was on the ceiling when the Academy Awards were given out in L.A. Isn't that cool? That's fantastic. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. I never would, I, from a parking lot to the Academy Awards. Yep, yep. And what, and you know what, what so Max, yeah, so I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. What, 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 what was it? Did we know what it was? Oh, no. It was just some, some substance that you put on the ground so that you can, uh, it's reflective. Uh, so that it probably had to do with the striping that mm -hmm. they, they put down. That's, that's pretty cool. So I'm going to expand the next question because um, it's who is your favorite regular patron? So you might have one of those. But I'd also like to know who your favorite regular client is. <laughs> uh, well, all of them, of course. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> that's the business person in Maxine right there. Good answer. Um. 
let, let me answer that one first. I think it's the person who gets what I was up to and, and just wants whatever, that little nudge, that little spark, that little more confidence um, to, to go out and do it and, and find out what that formula is. Uh, because it's not, it's not a secret. It's, um, but I think it's not the kind of things that we're taught uh, as we go through our training. We tend to um, concentrate on, on details when you haven't dealt with, with the basics yet of yeah. how to connect with people. And whether those people are your board members or your staff members or your, your users or your vendors or, you know, anybody. Uh, so, so that's my favorite client, the, the one who, who really wants as much as they can get out of, out of what I have to give. But my favorite patron, his name was John Green and not the author. Um, so the Westport Little League made it to the finals one year. And I had the crazy idea of showing every minute of those games in our community room. Well, as you know, baseball has no begin has a beginning, it has no end. It just keeps going until the game is over. So I found myself, because it was my brilliant idea, being the staff person there most of those days. And um, the library was across the street from from a shelter. And uh, so so people from the shelter were there, people, friends of the kids were there. I mean it was the full audience of, of the community. And I was there, but I was kind of like in a baseball cap and, you know, dressed for a baseball game. Um, and this guy came by and, and, and we started talking about baseball. And he was someone from the, from the shelter that I sort of recognized, but, but I'd never talked to before. And we had a great conversation. And in the conversation, I found out that he had owned a marketing company um, in his right. past life. So... Um, he saw me in the library a couple of days later dressed differently as what well. and he looked at me and said oh my god i had no idea i was talking to the library director and i said doesn't matter i was fascinated by by what you had to say and um i really want to pick your brain so he we made him part of our marketing team is that he, right yeah he he had he was just great and when he came he made sure that he was at his best you know, that, that he had kind of left uh, that life behind, at least for a few hours, and um, where, where he wasn't at his best. And, uh, and he really, really contributed. And at my going away party, uh, which had lots, lots of people there, I bumped into him the day before, and I said, John, are you coming tomorrow night to my party? And, and he said, you want me there? And I said, absolutely. Um, and, and there he was all dressed up and sober and he looked great. And, you know, the hundreds of people, he was the one that I was so happy that, that, that came. So that's my favorite. That's great. Okay. So our last question, what are people without library cards missing out on? Ah, uh, community, connecting with community, connecting with opportunities, um, being accepted, feeling like they belong. You know, I always thought that doctors and therapists should have a prescription pad pre-printed -pre that says, 
go to the library because it's it's there's, there's nothing like feeling you're supposed to be someplace, and that's what that's what we do. We make people feel that way. That's great. <clears throat> Amazing. So we have to say thank you for being such a great sport and answering our list of questions. This is really a lot of fun having you on the podcast. And we're going to have to do uh, part two on passion because I think you ooze it. It comes out of your pores. We can see it. Thank you. It's been a joy. I'm so glad we bumped into each other, Chris. And I have to say for the listeners out there that the way I got to know Chris was because I was having a terrible problem with my iPhone and connecting to my internet service. And That's right. Chris doggedly tried to help, even after I got back home. He checked on me. So one great librarian. And Bob, I haven't known you except for the last hour. So yeah. Well, you know what? Chris, is that Chris we ran into? Didn't I walk up on you guys? Yep, Bob helped us, helped us. Did, too. Right? Oh, that was right. you. That, that, was that was me. Yeah. Wow. That was me. Yeah. Great. Wow. Great. Well, that's such a small world. That's awesome. Isn't that funny? Well, Maxine, you're an inspiration, not only to me, but, um, you know, I, I'm just, just talking to you for the last hour or so. Uh, I've got a little more extra spark in me um, to go out there and, and just do it a little bit better. Great. It's worth it. Yep. So just a plug for, for Maxine, if you're in, in a library or, or need some help with your library and would like to reach out to Maxine for a consult, visit her website at Maxine. Blyweiss.com. It's M-A-X-I-N-E-B-L-E-I-W-E-I-S.com. And you can reach out to Maxine at her email, which is Maxine at MaxineBlyweiss.com. Any other plugs there, uh, Maxine? I just had Well, no, my name, my name is totally unique. So as long as you spell it right, you'll find me on Facebook and Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and any other way. Um, just, just with that name. Excellent. So hopefully uh, somebody will give you a call or send you an email and, uh, and get in touch because uh, passion is what you have. Thanks, so, guys. Yeah, sure. Thanks for coming on. So that's all the time we have for this edition. Uh, if you have questions or comments on our show, visit our contact us section on our website at thelibrarypros.com. We'll have links and photos from this episode on the site. And visit us on Twitter at, at the Library Pros, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheLibraryPros, or any place else you want to get in touch with us. So don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell a friend about us because word of mouth is how our listenership grows. And remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, and not those of the Sage and Public Library or the MS Clark Memorial Library or any other library. So we'll see you again soon. Take care. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Kristen Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.